The story is told of Thomas Edison, one of the greatest inventors of the Industrial Revolution, credited with the invention of the incandescent light bulb. And he was asked, being interviewed about that specific invention, the light bulb, and the interviewer asked him about that process. And, you know, the story is that it took over 1,400 tries to get it right, to find a, a material, a fiber that would last in that filament substance that would last more than a few hours. And it took 1,400 tries before he found something that would last, something that would work. And so being interviewed, he was asked by this journalist or uh, interviewer, you know, after 1,400 failures, what encouraged you to keep trying, to keep going? And Edison looked at the journalist and smiled and he said, failures? I didn't fail. I didn't fail even once. And the journalist said, what do you mean? And he said, I discovered over 1,400 ways not to make an incandescent light bulb. (laughs) It's easy to get discouraged in failure, isn't it? We all understand the the, the dynamic of what what it feels like when we fail, when we miss the mark, when we come up short, when we ruin a perfectly good situation or fall short of the perfect opportunity, you know, and we we know that we've failed, and that feeling grips us, and it's a feeling that's common to all of us. We know the feeling of failure. Well, tonight as we pick up the journey of the children of Israel here in the beginning of of Deuteronomy, we have before us the narrative given to us by Moses of one of the greatest failures in all of human history. In fact, if you fail in the way that they failed, that is described for us in this chapter, it is one of the greatest failures that you and I could experience. And that is this. It's to come up short or to not obtain the best of what God has planned for your life. And to fail in that is one of the greatest failures that a person can experience in their life. Now, whenever failure takes place, the natural reaction to it for all of us is to assess what went wrong. Where did things break down? Why did I fail in that? Or why did they fail? Where is the problem? At least that's my tendency. I want to know what went wrong so that maybe that won't happen again. And so what went wrong for the children of Israel to fail as they did? Fail to meet their destiny, to experience what God had made them for and planned for that generation. What made them fail? It's interesting to me to consider what didn't go wrong. That that their failure was not that of a moral issue. It isn't that they came up short morally and therefore they missed God's best. It's interesting to me that it wasn't a matter of chance. It wasn't just that they, you know, it were in the wrong place at the wrong time and it just didn't quite work out for them. It wasn't an issue of chance. It had nothing to do with ability. It wasn't because they didn't have the skills that were necessary to to meet what God wanted. It had nothing to do with their parents, what their parents had done or how their parents had raised them. It, It didn't have anything to do with that. It had nothing to do with the devil. It wasn't Satan's fault that they missed out on this opportunity that was before them. And it wasn't because they didn't deserve it. And those are all things that we might think when failure happens, especially spiritually, when it comes to our relationship with God, those are the kinds of things we think are the reason why we failed. It was moral. It was wrong place, wrong time. It was just chance. It was my parents. It was their fault, the way they raised me. I I just couldn't handle God's pressure. Or it was the devil. You know, we have all these things, but none of that was the reason why they failed. They failed for one reason. Their lives were wasted in wandering for one reason and one reason only. And that was this. 
disobedience because of unbelief. Disobedience because of unbelief. And so as we look at this chapter, we find that this narrative, this text is of great value to us. And here's why. Because if we, in our relationship with God, in our pursuit of his plan for our lives, if we turn up short, it will be, and it often is, for the same reason that they fell short. Because of disobedience caused by unbelief. And so this is a profitable lesson for us. And so, after 40 years now of wandering, and again, if you weren't here last week to hear why they had been wandering for 40 years, you'll hear some of it tonight. But at this point, as Moses is about to speak, for 40 years they have been wandering, wasting time because of their unbelief. And now we have the narrative of it. And to us, to you and me tonight, this text serves two purposes. Number one, it's a warning. It's an admonition to you and I of what can happen to us if we, like them, follow their pattern. And number two, and this should encourage you, is that it gives to us, really, the simplicity of success. How simple it is to do well in the things of God. To go as far as we can and to reach our full spiritual potential in, in, in our relationship and in, in the, the plan that he has for us. And so we begin in chapter uh, 1, verse 1. And the first three verses really put things in perspective for us. Notice here, it says this. It says, these be the words which Moses spoke unto all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. So they haven't yet crossed into the promised land. They're right on the border, the fringes of entering in to that which God had appointed for them, that God was giving to them. They're right there, ready to obtain it. And it says, in the plain, over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. Now here it is, verse 2. I love this. It's tragically... uh, hilarious verse two he says this he says there are 11 days journey from oreb that's mount sinai where they had received the law 38 years earlier 11 days journey from oreb by the way of mount seir unto kadesh barnea kadesh barnea is where they are while moses is speaking so they are standing at kadesh barnea they had come from mount sinai and he tells them it takes 11 days to get from oreb to kadesh barnea but notice verse 3 and it came to pass in the 40th year in the 11th month on the first day of the month that Moses spoke unto the children of Israel according unto all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. What was supposed to take 11 days took 40 years. You ever get that feeling in your own life? Why am I still here? Why am I still wandering around this mountain? Why, what is going on with this journey that was supposed to be so short, so quick? So painless. And now 38 years later, I'm still walking around in circles. What's going on? How does that happen? How does 11 days turn into 40 years? Well, that's what we get to find out tonight in the story. And hopefully we don't repeat the pattern in our own experience. Well, what is it that they failed to do? What was their failure? Well, read on. Verse 4. It says, After... He had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Ashtoreth in Edrai. On this side of Jordan, in the land of Moab, began Moses to declare this law. So here's the scene that's set as he's just about to speak. It's one month before they're going to go into the land of destiny, the land of promise. They've already tasted a little bit of success. They've seen two kingdoms fall. Sihon, king of Og, and 
king of Heshbon and Og, whatever, king of Bashan. He, he's seen a little bit. You've tasted just a little bit, and now Moses speaks. Now, we'll hear more about Sihon and Og in chapters 2 and 3. So, uh, you, you know, you'll get the story of what happened to them. But now he's going to speak, and he says in verse 6, he says, The Lord our God spoke unto us in Oreb, Sinai saying, you have dwelt long enough in this mount. Turn you and take your journey and go to the mount of the Amorites and unto all the places nigh thereunto, in the plain and in the hills and in the valley and in the south and by the seaside to the land of the Canaanites and unto Lebanon and unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. The promise to which he is referring, the destiny to which he's pointing them to, is a promise that had been given to Abraham 400 years previously. As Abraham stood on that land in Canaan, God spoke to him and he said, look to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. As far as your eye can see from the river of Egypt to the, to the Nile River or the great river, the river Euphrates, I have given you this land. And then he promised him concerning his descendants, 400 years has now passed. We'll answer that question, the question that you're thinking, well, why? We'll answer that in our studies to come as we move through the text. We'll understand, we'll discover, you know. But the promise that was given is now one month from being fulfilled. Of course, 40 years late. It should have been done 40 years ago from this time. But there they are. They're on the brink of the promised land. What was the promised land for them? It was the land of destiny. It was the fullness of what God had created them for. It was a land of abundant provision. The Bible called it a land that flows with milk and with honey, with richness, with fatness. It's described as, for them, a land full of houses that they didn't build, and vineyards that they didn't plant, and olive trees and wells that they didn't dig, a land of abundant provision, all laid out for them, and then given to them freely by God. It was to be a place where they would live in satisfaction and under the blessing and providence of Almighty God in His presence. It was the promised land. It was the land that they were destined to obtain, a promise that God had given to them. That's what it is that they're being told to go in and possess, obtain, God is saying, that for which you have been created. Live in the blessing that God has destined upon your life. Now listen, for every Old Testament picture, there is a corresponding New Testament principle or precept. For every Old Testament picture, there's a New Testament principle or precept. So the promised land for them was the land of milk and honey. What is the promised land? What does it represent for the Christian, the New Testament believer, in terms of our relationship with God? Hymnology would tell us that the promised land is a picture of heaven. But that doesn't quite fit. You see, for two reasons. First of all, the promised land in the Old Testament was was a great land, but it was a land of giants in a land of battles, and there would be difficulties, and there would be wars, and there would be issues that would be uncomfortable and problems that they would face, and and that doesn't match up. Heaven is perfect. There'll be no wars. There's no giants. There's no issues, no difficulties. That's rest. It's eternal, see, And, and so it doesn't quite match. The second reason why I believe firmly that it isn't heaven is that the New Testament tells us clearly that there are no things on earth. There is no picture. There is no story. There is nothing that we can point to or describe that would even begin to parallel or describe the glory that awaits us in heaven. 
is that there is no comparison. There is no Old Testament story that properly pictures the kingdom that awaits us in glory, in eternity. And so the promised land does not represent heaven, our death and passing into an eternal bliss with the Lord. That's not the promised land. So what is it, you say? The promised land for you and me, what it represents is entering into the fullness of all of what the New Testament promises. It's obtaining and experiencing in our lives that which God has given to us, the promises that are laid out for us in scriptures, promises that we didn't earn, houses we didn't build, vineyards and fruitfulness, fat that we didn't plant, olive trees, anointing oil, wells that we didn't dig. Jesus said it would be like rivers of living water that would gush forth, torrents, if you would. So the promised land is the promises that God gives to us. So when you're reading your Bible and and you read about the favor that God puts upon your life, you read about how he promises that he will provide for you, that he'll establish you and strengthen you, That he's working all things together for good in your life. To give you a future and a hope. You read about how it says that he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That his will for your life is to bring you into a place of blessing. Into something that's been personally carved out, custom made and tailored to who you are. It's a land of destiny. It's discovering all that God has made you to do and made you to be. It's the promised land. And for me to try to describe that for you, I would cheapen it. Because God only knows you and what he's provided and, 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 and planned for you. And he's laid it out for us. And so for you and I, to obtain the promised land is to obtain the best of what God has promised and planned for your life and mine that we might live in satisfaction and in fullness and under the full blessing of God within our lives. Like it says of David, that he had rest on every side. He could look at every component and area of his life and say, Lord, you've blessed me in in that. You've blessed me in my family. You've blessed me in my marriage. You've blessed me in my kingdom. You've blessed me with my servants and those that are under me. You've blessed me in my industry. And I can look at every area of my life and I can say that, God, you have removed every, every obstacle. You've taken every hindrance away and, and, and I'm at perfect rest in what you've made within my life. That is what the promised land represents for you and I as New Testament Christians. And as God said to them, go in and possess it, so he says to you and I, take possession of that which has been given to you. Not by what you've deserved, not by the effort that you'll put forth, but simply because the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so God told them, go in and take it. Not only did he promise it to them and then command them to go in and take it, but he structured them for success. Notice as we read on, he says in verse 9, he says, And I spoke unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. The Lord your God hath multiplied you. And behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. The Lord, God of your fathers, make you a thousand times so many more than you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I myself, Moses says, alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? And if you read Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, you realize, man, they had a burden and they were a strife and a problem constantly. There was always issues with these people, the children of Israel. And so here's Moses' solution, verse 13. He says, take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which thou hast spoken is good for us to do. So I took the chief of your tribes, wise men and known, And made them heads over you, captains over thousands and captains over hundreds. Uh, 
and captains over 50s and captains over 10s and officers among your tribes. And I charged your judges, those captains that I put over you, I charged your judges at that time, saying, hear the causes between your brethren and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. The sentence is from the Lord. Don't fear them. Don't respect them. Don't prefer one above another. And he says, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. So Moses recounts to them how they, by the providence of God and by the hand of Moses, were structured as a nation. Now, what he doesn't tell us here that we read back in Exodus chapter 18 where this took place is that this wasn't his idea. This idea to structure the people and put captains over thousands and over hundreds and over tens. It was actually his father-in-law, Jethro, a Midianite. And, 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 and Moses was there at Mount Oreb and Jethro came to him. And, and it says that from sunup to sundown, Moses sat before the people hearing their cases. One after the next, after the next. Every day from sunup to sundown, he did nothing but adjudicate between the brothers and settle the issues that they had and so jethro came to him and he said moses you can't live this way you're going to kill yourself you have got to share the burden you've got to share the load and so he gave him the counsel and the lord ratified it in the heart of moses by his spirit and moses did what jethro said and the lord blessed it the lord raised up this leadership that was around moses What's interesting to me is who it was that was chosen to bear the burden with Moses. Who was it that God looked at or put on Moses' heart or prepared among the people to be in places of leadership to help bear the load or the work of ministry? He tells us there in verse 13, he says, Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes. People with wisdom, people that have understanding, and people that have a reputation. In other words, Moses, I want you to choose the people that are already doing it. That they're already doing it. They have a reputation. They have a capacity for this. God has already put it in their hearts, and and they're doing it. Those are the people that you're to choose. Those are the ones that will serve. It's often the case how God raises up people to serve in the ministry in whatever capacity he chooses. It isn't that people are appointed randomly or voted on or their name is drawn out of a hat. Oftentimes, it's the people that are already doing it. It's the people that have the wisdom and the understanding to know what to do, and they have a reputation as those that are doing it. I know that that's the way I was brought up in the ministry. Nobody came to me and said, hey, you ever thought about a career in ministry? Nope. <laughs> you know, no, it, it was, it, when I got saved, there was a desire to, for the things of God to serve, to be around the people of God. And, and so it was just a natural thing to just start serving. Whatever capacity was open to just do it. And from there, the Lord began to open up doors. He began to bring me along and teach me other things, develop gifts and bring forth fruit in small things, teach me his ways and faithfulness. And, 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 and you know, I, I don't want to come across like I know something, or, but, but that's the way it works. It's who's doing it. And I know that's the way it works here in the church. We don't make or appoint leaders we ratify what God is already working in someone's life. And so those were the people that Moses chose. It's also interesting to consider in the structure that was uh, there in in, uh, Israel in those infant days of her existence, that the problems would move up the rank of authority depending upon their degree of difficulty. In other words, the easiest issues would be settled by the easiest of people. 
But the harder an issue was, the more it would get bumped up to someone of a higher rank or of a higher authority, and that only the most difficult, the hardest things were brought before Moses. And it makes me appreciate the difficulty of the job that Moses had. Because if you think about it, you know, he's getting the problems that no one else can solve. He's got the issues that no one else can come up with an answer for. And now he's got to make weighty and heavy decisions. I watch the way Bobby operates around here. And I see the decisions that he has to make, you know, as the head pastor, the senior pastor here at the church. And I don't covet that position. And I wouldn't want to be the one that wears that hat and, and has to make some of those decisions, some of those judgments, those uh, calls, you know. And, and so because I'm not him and I can speak in, in your hearing, he would never say it. But, you know, pray for Bobby. You know, love Bobby. Understand, respect, and, 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 and understand the difficulty that can come in being in that position, you know. So Moses said, the hardest cases bring to me. You know, the rest... You guys handle it, and it took the load off Moses. Now, all that to say is that God had blessed them and multiplied them numerically. He had given them a a constitution, a code, a law that was geared to make them succeed. And then he had structured them governmentally and given them a system whereby they would prosper. The only thing that they lacked as a nation was land. And that was the thing that God was now doing. So all of that to say is that God had put evidence among them that he was, in fact, building, blessing, and leading them into where they were going. And so, how did they fail? They were commanded to go in. They were geared for success. They were structured to prosper. But they didn't do it. Why not? Where did failure begin? How did they fail when everything was working in their favor? How does a Christian fail when everything is working in our, in, in our favor? Notice with me verse 19. Three things if you're taking notes. He says, and when we departed from Oreb, Mount Sinai, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said unto you, you are come unto the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give to us. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it. As the Lord, God of thy fathers, has said unto thee, fear not, neither be discouraged. The commandment comes. God speaks to them. He says, go, take the land. It's been given to you. You can see it. Go and get it. The command is clear. It comes. But notice verse 21. Behold, the Lord, oh, goodness, verse 22. He says, and you came near unto me, every one of you, and said, we will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land and bring us word again by what way we must go up and into what cities we shall come up. See, the command was, go. The response was, well, just slow down a little bit, Moses. And here's what happened, and here's what happens to us. This is where failure always begins in the life of God's people. It's when instead of obedience, we evaluate. When we replace obedience with evaluation, we have made the first step towards failure. God said, go. Go in and possess the land. They said, well, that's just not wise. That's just not how things get done. This, this isn't good. We need, to, we need to send some guys in there And we need to make a plan and we need to figure out how much energy this is going to take and how much strength and how much time and how we should go about doing it. And we need to carefully plan and, and, and do do. Now, I'm not against plan. I'm not against, you know, any of these things as led by the spirit. But for them, it was detrimental. 
It became the first step in their demise because instead of just obeying, doing what it was that God told them to do, they began to say, well, we need to evaluate and see if this really is the thing. Listen, here's what they had. They had, first of all, Scripture. They had the promise that had been given by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that that land was theirs. It was given to them. They had the Word of God. Not only did they have the scripture, but they had evidence that God was among them and that God was moving them. They had seen the Red Sea part. They had received his commands. They had heard his audible voice there at the base of Mount Sinai as he gave them the Ten Commandments. They had scripture, they had evidence, and now they have a command. God speaks to them through Moses, his servant, and he says, go. That should have been enough. They should have gone in and possessed the land. But instead they said, no, we need to take more time and we need to evaluate if we should do this. And so rather than obeying, they began to decide or they decided to weigh their options at the time when they should have taken action. Now, Here's something practical that maybe maybe will be useful to you. I know it is for me. I know for me personally and for what I've observed in countless other people is that if a person waits until the moment of decision, or or the moment of action, rather, to decide what they're going to do, they almost always make the wrong choice. If you wait until it's time to move to decide what you're going to do, you're probably going to choose wrong. You know, I think of Joseph, not, not Mary and Joseph, but Joseph, son of Jacob. Here he is, he's a slave in Egypt, God's working in his life, and all of a sudden, he's exalted and promoted. He becomes the chief captain in Potiphar's household, a very wealthy man. And so trusted was Joseph that Potiphar didn't know anything that went on in the house except for the food that he ate because he trusted Joseph. And here comes Mrs. Potiphar. And she sees a young, handsome man who's got some influence. And she, no doubt, being attractive herself, she comes to him and she seeks to seduce him. Hey, Potiphar's gone. There's no one in the house but you and I. You're young. I'm willing. It's the perfect scandal. They'll make movies about it someday. It's just the perfect situation, Joseph. That's a powerful temptation. I don't know of a better illustration of power in temptation that you can conjure than that story of Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar that day. And when you hear the response of Joseph, he says, no. He says, how could I sin against God and do this great wickedness? There is no one greater in this house than me. And the master Potiphar, he doesn't know anything and he's given me everything except you because you're his wife. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What you discover from that text is that Joseph had already been in that situation months or maybe even several months previously, and he already knew what he was going to do. He had settled it in his heart that he was going to do what was right in the eyes of God and not violate his purity or his morality or what God was calling him to be as a Christian, as a man of God. But the decision was made long before the moment of action was to take place. Because oftentimes when the moment of action comes, our thoughts aren't clear enough to make clear decisions. And and so we purpose as Christians, we decide, you know what, Lord, let my life be lived in obedience to you. That it be a settled issue. That when something comes, when the command of God is put to my decision, what I have to do, that I'm not going to think about whether I'm going to, I'm not going to evaluate at that time whether I'm going to obey. I'm going to do the thing that God has called me to do, told me to do, commanded me to do. And so they evaluated instead of obedience. That was the first step. Well, he goes on, verse 23. He says, and the saying pleased me well. And I took 12 men of you, one of a tribe. And they turned and went up into the mountain. And came unto the valley of Eshgal and and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down 
to us. By the way, when you read about the, you know, that, that event of them bringing the fruit, it says that they brought a cluster of grapes that took two men to carry on stakes on their shoulders. The fruit was good. Pomegranates the size of basketballs. They brought the fruit of the land in their hands and they brought it down to us and they brought us word again and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God doth give us. Notwithstanding, nevertheless, you would not go up, but you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our heart, saying the people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there, dun, 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 you know, the giants. There's giants in that land. Here's the second step to failure in their life and also in ours. It's when we rest upon human reasoning rather than divine revelation. When we rest upon human reasoning, our own understanding rather than on what God said he would do or the way things or the way God says things are when we trust in what we think rather than what he says we're going down a wrong path he hates us that makes sense doesn't it <laughs> how many of us have had that thought i know i have before oh Lord, you must hate me to have me going through this problem right now. No, we we can think that way. That makes sense. Because when we realize who we are, we know what we are. And so when we recognize what we are, and we know that God sees what we are, it only stands to reason that he should, what? (laughs) Hate us. See, that makes sense. It lines up with my intellect, with my understanding. It's contrary to what he says. We can't do this unless God intervenes. That's true. And if my rationale is that God hates me, then he's not going to intervene, and therefore God is putting me into an impossible situation. God is leading me right into my demise and my destruction. That's what God is doing in my life right now. See, that's what human reasoning always defaults to. That he wants to destroy me. He's finished with me. This trial is going to be the end of me. This battle is going to bury me. It's over for me. This, this situation, I cannot get, on, get out on the other side of it. And so we lean upon our own understanding. What does the scripture say? Proverbs chapter 3, verses what 5 and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths or make your paths straight. That we're not to lean upon our own understanding, we're to trust in the word of God. Doesn't matter what we feel. Well, I don't feel saved today. I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like God's plan is where I'm at or that I'm in his... It doesn't matter what you feel. What does God say? Because the word of God will always be contrary to human feelings. Or except, you know, I would say 98% of the time. Which is the more reliable? Our feelings change by a cup of coffee. A good night's sleep. Too much food. A flu virus. I mean, anything makes our feelings change, you know. But God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of God doesn't change. The promise of God is yes and amen. He says, I am the Lord, I am the same, I change not. His word is reliable. It's a reliable record. So if God tells you something, and then he leads you in a direction, and then he gives you a command to disobey is foolish. To rest upon human reasoning rather than rely upon revealed direction that comes from God. So they evaluated instead of obeyed. 
They went with their own reasoning instead of God's reasoning. And then number three is that they resisted godly counsel. Look with me again at verse 29. Moses says, then I said unto you, dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bare thee as a man doth bear his son in all the way that you went until you came into this place. He he says, look, the Lord is going to fight for you. Yes, the cities are great and walled up to heaven. Yes, there are, you know, problems and giants and battles to face. Yes, you're like grasshoppers before them, but that's irrelevant. Because God is the one that's giving you the land. It's not your strength. It's his promise. And nothing is too hard for the Lord. Then he says, just like you've seen in Egypt. And he says, and for these years or these months, God has borne you like a man does bear his son. To show you by what way you should go. And in a cloud by day, he led you. And the Lord heard the voice of your words. Now watch this. It says, and he was wroth. That's a great King James word, isn't it? Wroth. It means that he was angry. He was angry. Why was the Lord angry? He was angry? Why? Why does any father get angry? Because listen, he's not a frustrated father angry that he cannot Break the will of an obstinate child. That's not the source of the anger. Here's the source of the anger. Here's what it is. It's that they are going to fail to obtain the best of what he wants for them. That makes God angry. When we don't have the fullness of what he destined us to have, that bothers him. Why? Because he hates us? No, because he loves us. Anger is a part of love. And when God loves, and then he sees us by the wayside, he sees us being destroyed, he sees us in demise, unnecessarily, that bothers God. You believe not in this thing. Now, it isn't that they didn't believe in God. They believed in God. It's that they doubted his intent and his goodness. That was the issue. They believed in God, but they became suspicious of his intent because of the difficulty of the situation. Now, how many of us have ever been there? You're in a situation that's way beyond you. It's insurmountable. It's unpassable. It's bad, you know. And in that time, we can begin to question, not if God exists, but does he really love me? Is he really for me? Is he really leading my life? Is he in this or is he hanging me out to dry? And this is, that's what happened is that they began to doubt his goodness because of the severity of the situation. And I believe that this is a huge issue with Christians in the church of Jesus Christ today. They believe in God. They trust Christ for their salvation. But they fail to yield their lives in total obedience to God because they doubt the goodness of his plan and what he would have for them. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do the things that I say? That's a great question, isn't it? One of the greatest paradoxes in all of the Bible is when Jesus gave Peter a command and Peter's response was, not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. That's in, you can't say not so, Lord. You could say not so, friend. You could say not so, you can't say not so, Lord. And yet that's what many Christians do. When God gives a command or instruction or seeks to lead, Yeah, no, I know I'm saved. I believe in you. I'll see you in heaven. But, you know, I think I know better in this situation, in this time, what's best for my life. I know, Lord, we say, or some say, I know, Lord, that that, that I'm not supposed to be sexually active with him or her before we're married or, you know, outside of marriage or in an extramarital situation. I know, Lord, that that's not supposed to happen. 
but Lord, you don't understand that, that if, I, if I obey in that thing that you're saying to me, then they're not going to stay with me and, and I'll be alone. And if I'm not promiscuous in, in the way that I am with, you know, the opposite sex, if I'm not a little bit promiscuous, I'm never going to find a mate. Because that's just not how things work in these days, Lord. So you, you just don't understand how it works. No, no, no. Listen, it isn't that God doesn't understand how it works. It's that your rationale is all skewed. Because you think that the way that I'm going to build a lasting relationship is by being promiscuous or giving myself in that way to that person. And God would say, no, no, no. I want to bless you with a relationship that will last. I want to put you in a situation where you will have the best marriage, the best family, the best link and bond to that person that is possible to have, and you cannot have it if you live that way. Not so, Lord, we say. It's our rationale that's skewed. Our disobedience comes because we don't think God's got our best in mind. So we think he hates me and he wants me to be single. That's why he tells me not to do that, because that's what happens to that type of person. They're alone and they're single. That must be what God wants for my life. You've got it all wrong. Or the Lord puts it in your heart. He says, hey, it's time to get plugged in. Be involved in a home group. And it's been in your heart. You know God is leading, but you say, oh, you know, you begin to evaluate and you go, you know, I just, that's going to take time. And it's on a night of the week that I I love those shows and, and it's busy and the kids are in sports and, and it's just, it just isn't conducive. And plus, I'm going to have to be vulnerable. You get into a small group and people start finding out things about you. And I don't really like any of them, you know, and, and you know, and so, and so, I, you know, Lord, I, I'll get to that. You know, I know that there'll be a time in my life for that, you know, and so we, we evaluate, we rest upon our own reasoning. We refuse his command, his counsel. And then we say, man, you know, why is it that I feel like I'm part of the church, but I'm not really part of the church? I, I, it's so big. The, 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 it's, so, it's such a big church. I need something smaller because I can't get involved there. I can't get, well, of course you're not linked in. You're not plugged in with other Christians. You say, man, you know, I, I'm really praying for a job. I'm praying that that employment opportunity comes. I hope it comes. Maybe it's in the home group that the link is going to happen, that you're going to find that that's what God's leading. It's his plan. He's into it. Why? Because obedience to God in the things that he calls you to do is the path to having the best that you can have and being the best that you can be and experiencing all that there is to experience. It's when we obey because we believe that he has our best in mind. You say, well, you know what? God's just not that interested in me. He doesn't see individuals. He's dealing with a whole nation. What am I? I'm just Joe Schmo. What does God care about me? I'm just a number. I'm just a part of the establishment. He doesn't see what I'm doing. He do- oh, no? Read on. It says, verse 35, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto their fathers. Except, verse 36, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Caleb was one of the spies that gave good rapport. Caleb, at the age of 80, will go into the land, dispel the inhabitants himself, take down the three sons of Anak single-handedly, and divide the the segment that's allotted to him to his family, just as it's said here that would happen. Because he believed, he followed. 80 years old, he did it himself. He didn't even rely upon the armies of Israel. Not just Caleb. Then it talks about Moses for a moment. Verse uh, 37. He says, Also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, You shall not go in thither. Now, we'll get into that, you know, at the end of chapter 2 there, you know, or chapter 3 when God tells him why, you know, uh, we don't have time now. Moses doesn't get to go in. Why? Because of disobedience. He smote the rock twice. And then verse 38. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. 
Joshua will go. See, listen, God doesn't see corporate. He sees individuals. He, he doesn't see a whole nation that rebels. He sees the heart of each individual person, and he will act and reward according to what he sees. And so he sees, he sees what we do. He sees what we think. He sees our response when his spirit prods us or pulls us. Well, they fail. Verse 39, he says, Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn you, and take your journey unto the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So they fail to obtain what God had for them. Well, failure has a reaction. Notice verse 41. It says, Then you answered and said unto me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. So what happens when we fail? We want to fix it, right? <laughs> when we fail, we immediately want to fix it. Now I'm going to get it right. I screwed up last time. I'll get it right this time. But it says, and when you had girded on every man his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the hill. And the Lord said unto me, say unto them, go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest you be smitten before your enemies. So I spoke unto you, and you would not hear. This is a common pattern with these people. But you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and you went presumptuously up into the hill. And the Amorites, which dwelt in that mountain, came out against you and chased you as bees do, and destroyed you, even into Seir, even unto Hormah. And you returned, and you wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not hearken to your voice, nor give ear unto you. Failure typically is responded to with presumption. A self-afforded desire to make things right. Well, now I'm going to go and do the thing that God called me to do. And here's what you discover when you go to do that. You discover, wow, it really was going to have to be God. <laughs> because they go and try it now in their own strength without God's hand leading, without God's hand fighting, and they fail miserably. They can't do it. They were right. It was going to take God's help. God was willing to help. He's always willing to help. And so they, you know, uh, presumed. They found out that they needed God, and they realized that the best they could do without God was to fail. The good news is, Here's the close, is that faith is never the byproduct of presumption. In other words, true faith in the life of a Christian is not when we think up something to do and then we go out and do great exploits for God. Faith in the Christian life is simply responding to what it is that God is putting before us to do. When you read the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter uh, 11 and you see all of those that were accredited with righteousness from faith, not one of them is because they thought up something to do and they went out and did this great exploit for God. They simply responded to what God put in front of them to do obediently and they obtained the promises and they were rewarded for it. That's faith. And see, that encourages me. Here's why. Because oftentimes, I get that same feeling like you do. That, man, you know, I'm not raising the dead. And I'm not out in the mission field. And I'm not trudging through swamps. And I'm not bringing the gospel to the Zulu tribes. You know, and, I'm, and so I'm really not living a life of faith. Because if I really was living by faith, I would be doing those things. But I'm just holding down a job. I'm raising a family. I'm paying my mortgage. You know, I'm involved in my church. I'm not really living. No, 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 no. Listen. If that's what God has put before you to do and you're doing it, then you're living by faith because you're obedient to what it is that he's called you to do. That's the key. That's where it's at. It's in doing what he's called us to do. And when we do that, we're in the path, in the place where God is going to lead our steps and he's going to bring us into the land of promise. That's his desire for us.
But when we resist, when we say, Lord, I don't know, I'm just not sure that you have my best interest in mind, and we do it our way, and we resist in the little things and in the big, that's when we find ourselves where they ended up. Look at verse 46 as we close. He says, so ye abode in Kadesh many days, according unto the days that you abode there. That's a sad verse as we close the narrative. So you abode there according to the days that you abode there. I believe that that's the legacy that will be written on the tombstone of some Christians. The testimony, the legacy of their life on earth will simply be, well, you abode there according unto the days that you abode there, you know. There really isn't much, you know, to report. You didn't, you know, whatever. That's what happens, you see. The Bible says that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. That's true for heaven. I believe it's also true on earth. That you cannot even begin to imagine or to illustrate the things that God has prepared for your life. The things that he sees when he looks at you. Like he did look at Peter and it says that he considered him. And he said, you are Peter, but you shall be. Petros, rock, stable. You're shifty, but you will be. And he looks at your life. And he sees what he's making. And he knows what he wants to do. And what he requires of you and I is that we simply obey. Is that we respond as his spirit leads and prompts. As we take heed to the things that he's instructed within his word. And his promise to you and to me is that he is going to bring you to the place of destiny. You'll find yourself saying, perfect. This is what I was made for. The, the, the intimacy that I have with you, Father, and the relationships that I have with others out there, and the experiences that I'm having in my life, this is what you made me for. And that blesses you, it brings you joy, and it glorifies him. Why? Because he's a father. It's what he wants for his kids. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And his desire is that we would walk in them. And so he pleads with us, follow. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those whose heart is perfect towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And so, Father, we come to you tonight. And we know that right now, Lord, your eyes are in this place that your spirit is here, that you know each one of our hearts. And I know, Lord, that tonight you're convicting. I know that you're challenging many here tonight about where they're at with you. About maybe something that you told them to do years ago, but they've been resisting, they've been evaluating, they've been reasoning within themselves. Pray that tonight, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the light of your truth and the perfect love of God would come upon each one of us here and that our lives would be yielded to you in absolute, complete, and total surrender. I pray, Father, that you would move here. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would make those adjustments in our attitudes and in our mindset. And that you would help us to just believe. That we would believe to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, as the psalmist declared. That we would experience all of your fullness, all that you have for us. And that our lives would not be wasted in wandering around Mount Seir, up and down the coast of the Red Sea, living in the past of what you did and the thought of what might have been, but Lord, that we might experience all that you have for us, the riches of your glory in Christ Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you would search us now, that as we sing this last song, that your spirit would move upon our hearts, 
And you would find in this room many, Lord, that would be willing to lift up their hands to you. To say, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Not my plans, but your plans. Not my dreams, but what you see. And that we would enter into the joy of the Lord even now. And Lord, I pray for those tonight that are facing the walls of Jericho. The giants of Og and Sihon. That you would give them victory. That they would believe you to move forward in the thing that you're calling them to do. And that they would find perfect light and perfect direction as they give their lives completely to you. So bless your people tonight, Lord. Let them know your perfect love towards them. Let them rest assured in the promise of your great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.